The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I'm happy to have you with me today. Be sure to stay in touch with me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Google+, Pinterest. Let's be in conversation. Today, I welcome Cheryl Patrice Dericot. Cheryl is the founder and editor-in-chief for 30-Minute Manager, an indie press she created in 2011. A life strategist for the 21st century, she's a frequent contributor to numerous publications, an engaging speaker, a trusted confidant, and highly respected consultant. Cheryl is the author of Being the Grown-Up, Taking Care of Someone with a Terminal Illness, published in 2013. The book's available in paper and ebook formats. Her, uh, her bio can be tweeted in four words, artist, activist, writer, vegan. For more information, visit www.30minutemanager.com and 30 is the numbers as opposed to spelled out. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me today. Oh, I'm, I'm very excited to have you. We share the same name, spelled the same way, and I don't know... Maybe when I was a very little child, I knew someone with the same name, spelled the same way. Now I've met two of you in the last few months. (laughs) I've met a few Cheryls, too. It's very funny. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. And we both live in Oakland, although we met in San Antonio at the Association for Death Education and Counseling Conference. So that's kind of um, an interesting synchronicity. And we both work with the Women's Cancer Resource Center here. But most it's amazing we never met. I <laughs> and uh, maybe most important for this show, our, bo- our moms both died of pancreatic cancer. Which was also just an incredible, incredible meeting of the minds that we should have met long ago. Absolutely. And so now we have a whole hour to, to talk. Um, I, I wanted to start, you know, obviously you, you fit the... The theme of this show, you've made something very wonderful, your book, out of your loss. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate that. I wanted to start start by talking about your mom a little bit. Kind of what, obviously you lived in the same place, Washington, D.C., yes? Yes. Uh, before she was ill. Um, was she pretty, you know, uh, was was she needing any help at that point before her diagnosis or was she pretty independent? She was pretty independent. Um, she did struggle with pretty bad arthritis, um, which just runs in our family at an early age. Um, so one of her great regrets during her illness was, oh, I should have pushed them to have a knee replacement 
when I was younger, because I'm not going to have that now, you know, but she got around with a cane and was very active um, until her decline with the cancer. And so that involved a real uh, uh, significant role change for the two of you. Absolutely. Absolutely, Cheryl. Um, My mother lived independently um, until her illness. Um, She was actually diagnosed at stage four, which over half of pancreatic cancer patients are diagnosed very late at stage four. And so her her health immediately declined and she required care. Was that a difficult transition for you? Uh, let alone her, but um, uh, I know with with my mom it was a little treacherous <laughs> because <laughs> because she was such an independent person and being in in the you know she had been very ill a few years before, but she kind of got back on her feet as quick as possible and went back to taking care of herself. You know, very very independent. Um, so that can sometimes be a big big issue for both people was it oh it was huge yeah it was huge so my mom was a widow and I was an only child um and she really had raised me to be just as independent as she was you know when I left home at 18 for college I never came back I never lived at home again um and some of that was the headstrong teenage years and I was very happy about it but you know once my mother was ill I had to stop at one point and say, wow, you know, when I was young, all I wanted to do was get away and be on my own. And now the only thing I want to do is get my mother out of this hospital and bring her home with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's just such a big emotional shift, isn't it? Uh, it really that, is. That's very familiar to me. Um, you know, the mother-daughter relationship can be a little complex. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well I always said. admired my mother, but uh, those interdependencies, I feel we made more progress with in her dying than maybe her our whole living before it's, that. It's very true. Um, I felt like my mother died when I was 45, so it'll be five years ago this August. And I felt like at 40, we had finally crossed that bridge of becoming friends. And, you know, a lot of the old dynamics had sort of, I won't say they were all gone, but they had certainly melded away. And so we had a much better interpersonal rapport by the time she got sick. And I remember a good friend saying to me, I am so sorry your mother's sick. But now she's finally going to meet the person we all know as your friends. Oh, what a beautiful thing for your friend to say. It was really great. That's, uh, you know, I, your, your friends were, a character, were characters in the book in a way, I felt. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were sitting next to you. Uh, I somehow was very aware of them and you mentioned them specifically at certain points but that just makes such a huge difference to have people really see what's happening for you um, while you're going through it and come with you to all those crazy appointments and uh, you know 
keep an eye on how things are going for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And particularly being an only child, you know, my close girlfriends were like my sisters, Mm. you know, my close male friends were my brothers. And so to have that support was huge. And what was interesting is, say for one, um, the friend that actually said that, and she is very much a character in the book, um, my friend Liz, is also an only child. But the rest of my friends, they all had brothers or sisters. And so they really felt like, oh, this is terrible. She doesn't have any brothers and sisters to help her. So we have to be there to the best of our ability you know, even though we may live in California or we may live in New York, we have to be supportive. That That's just such a notable thing because I think sometimes, um, I, I, I hear this a lot in the work I do, there's an abandonment that happens when you're going through uh, something like this, either your own illness or that of someone really close to you where people don't kind of know what to do and so they just sort of back up. But it sounds like your friends were quite the opposite of that. Yeah, it was really great. And I agree. I mean, I think there were some people, not many, that were very challenged um, by my mother's illness, whether they were, you know, my personal friends or her friends. Um, I think some of that had to do with the fast moving nature of pancreatic cancer, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, Absolutely. it's, It's just an incredibly fast moving disease. Um, and, you know, there are not a lot of medications, even if one is healthy enough for medications. And so um, I think that was also very challenging for people. But, you know, as a caregiver, and this is something I encourage other caregivers really to do too, is, you know, my job was to stand for my mother. So at the end of the day, I couldn't spend a lot of time on how, you know, my friend or her friend may feel, may be challenged on and on and on because she was the one having a very challenging health crisis. And so I didn't have a lot of time to hold hands with others. Well, that, that and that sort of naturally leads us to the first uh, section of your book I wanted you to read from a little bit because... Um, it it's i i find myself emphasizing a lot on this show that that myself and many people i know kind of learn to prioritize themselves more deeply during caregiving mm-hmm. and i think you're you're talking about one of the reasons you you just can't be bothered you know you've got to just do what is there to do you can't be worried about people's feelings about it or you know what they think quite as much and not to mention and i think this this section i've i've asked you to share really captures this if you don't take care of yourself you can't care give so let's um let's hear that um section from the self-care chapter sure this is uh chapter 14 self-care who takes care of you My friend Radhika was so worried about me as a caregiver, she pushed me to go see my doctor. She wanted me to get sleeping pills so that when I had opportunities to sleep, I would. I would often take naps during the day when the home health aide was getting my mom up in the morning or when family came over. Visiting my doctor at the time was actually a good thing to do. She had lost a husband to an equally aggressive cancer and was a great person to talk to about the stress I was under. 
She also gave me a prescription for sleeping pills, which I never took. But we laughed and said it would appease my friends to know a bottle was in the medicine cabinet. (laughs) She knew I would never take the pill because my mom might have needed me to get up in the middle of the night. So go visit your doctor, get your blood pressure checked, and if it's time for a full physical, go ahead and have it. Be honest about your loved one's terminal illness as it's now part of your personal history. That way, you and your doctor can actively monitor your health. Last but not least, figure out how to laugh. My mom and I liked equally light but different reality TV shows. She loved Dancing with the Stars and Hell's Kitchen. Actually, she loved anything with Chef Gordon Ramsay as we watched Master Chef 2. Hell's Kitchen with Chef Ramsay in full effect cussing people out in the kitchen. Master Chef featured amateur cooks, so it was a kindler, gentler Chef Ramsay. I preferred Project Runway and Work of Art. My mom liked for me to climb onto the hospital bed in my living room with her so we could watch these shows. As a result, I have lovely memories of side-splitting laughter with her, watching chefs in training ruining the scallops they had to serve Chef Ramsay or her spot-on analysis of visual artists competing for New York City museum shows. I love that because I think people who have not uh, been in the position of caring for someone close um, don't realize how much kind of hanging out is involved. It's true. There's a lot of... uh, I mean, there's also a lot of running around, but those moments where you just surrender to the lack of motion in the in the person, uh, I still have quite vivid memories of that with my first wife. Those moments where we just dropped everything and just hung around doing something like watching TV, or you know, it it has a it has a different quality, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is not a person that's going to be able to get up and go for a walk at that stage. So, you know, figuring out ways to also break up their day with some light moments, you know, from the constant onslaught of is it time for medication or how hard it is just to sit up for a little while. I mean, it really, I think, was beneficial to both of us to just have some structured activities like watching these very funny TV shows um, to keep us going through the difficult times. And also, I noticed, I mean, I don't, I don't know if your mom was a cook, but I know that you're an artist. So there was a relationship to, you know, uh, aspects of you that you couldn't do right then uh, with the art shows and the Project One runway you know absolutely absolutely (laughs) I mean yes my mom did enjoy cooking and she did enjoy going out you know to dine when she was healthy Um, and what would actually I didn't put this in the book but oftentimes I would put a group of artists that I hung out with on speakerphone because we used to gather at the time when work of art was on. And so when my mom got sick, I wouldn't go to the weekly gathering, but, you know, we'd have them on speakerphone. So it was like, oh, great. She's with the whole group now. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) They got to hear all the, all the, uh, all the laughter and, and funny jokes about it because, you know, I, I'm still, um, 
always emphasizing with people how much I laughed while I was hanging out with someone, less with my mom than with my partner, but lots of um, humor kind of uh, released my humor that those periods of time. And I, I thought of that when I was reading that part of your book about, you know, laughing. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times, and I think this was the difference I wanted in my book. I wanted it to be very practical. I think there are a number of wonderful books on the market that deal with the spiritual aspects of death and dying, um, you know, how to like reaffirm your spiritual relationships through grief. Um, There are huge, wonderful books about cancer, but I wanted to write a book that was really just nuts and bolts to help a person get through it and kind of organize topics in a way that they would see, oh yeah, this really is just part of life. I can get through this, you know, and I can actually laugh. I'm not a bad person if I'm laughing with someone who's dying. It's probably good for us both to laugh on occasion. Well, one thing that I thought was really great about your book was it was very practical, um, which I agree. There's not you're you're entering kind of a uh, a foreign country when you enter illness. Um, and there was a lot of practical uh, information, and yet interwoven with that was you and your mom. Um, and I think that helps any book when there's a personal uh, vantage point. Any book about, you know, illness, loss, grief, for me, benefits from that. Um, Thank you. Knowing, Thank you. Knowing that the person has has actually lived it is, is uh, key for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> not everybody. Too. Some people really like strict how-to books, but for me, it always helps me more when I know where the person was with it, what what brought them to write it. So I appreciated that quite a bit. Thank you. So we're ready for our first break, and uh, I'm going to recommend to you listeners that you just take these these few minutes while we're off the air, go to my host page, and connect with me. There are links to my website, all my social media, and you can find Cheryl Derricott at www.30minutemanager.com. Back after the break. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Are you ready for a real, fact-based show about alternative and natural approaches to health? Listen for Live Healthy, Be Healthy with Drs. Jim and Janine Fox. We're not about the latest health fads. We're about proven methods from real patients and real situations. Each week's show is an eye-opening look behind the scenes of real health. Live Healthy, Be Healthy can be heard live every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific Time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. I've been talking with Cheryl Derricott, author of Being the Grown-Up, Taking Care of Someone with a Terminal Illness. I, I didn't say when I first introduced you, Cheryl, but that title, Being the Grown-Up, you know, I, ca- I came to your, uh, actually, I saw the book before I came to your table at the conference, and I yes. just, it's really stood out because there's a little bit of a smile behind that title. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I think that's what happens when suddenly we're responsible for our parents. Um, And I think it's more challenging because we live in a time of baby boomers that for the most part are in great health and they're living longer than ever. So what happens when your baby boomer parent is not in great health because they get a terminal illness and suddenly you have this role reversal really quickly of, who has to be in charge, and, you know, reversal of the parent-child relationship in some cases. And at the same time, what I noticed with my, my mom was um, it was very delicate. How did I maintain her sense of autonomy while taking over some things for her? Um, that's, that's a tricky thing to float, and I think a lot of people do stumble over that. Absolutely. My mother wanted as much independence as possible for as long as possible. And so all of the documents, all of our meetings, you know, we didn't have many. We just had a couple of meetings with a family lawyer um, to get the paperwork in order. But she said, you know, I really want my daughter to have everything she needs to act when it's time. But I don't want to rush that. You know, I want to make decisions as long as I possibly can. Well, and the other thing is, um, I'm remembering several conversations with with my mom right now that had to do with me framing certain dependencies that were becoming necessary as ways of maintaining her independence. For instance, when it became clear to me she really needed, she, she wanted to live independently. She lived in an independent apartment about five minutes from me. Mm-hmm. She had moved a couple years before when she almost died of something else. Uh, she just, as soon as she got better enough, she moved to live five minutes from me. And it became clear she needed someone with her 24 hours. Yes. But, of course, that's a huge life change. And um, I couldn't just say, you need someone here 24 hours. 
I, I, I felt the need to frame it as, um, you know, you can take, you can maintain uh, charge of your life if you hire he- people, if you decide to hire people to take care of you. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I guess. It had to convolute so that getting help was an act of independence. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, I think my, my mother's a, a little bit older generation than yours because I'm older than you. Um, I think that was very, very important for her. That, um, you know, people who lived through the Depression and World War II, independence is like required or something. Yes. So yes. that, you know, so what I'm what I'm getting at is the way we have to gauge what how we float certain things to the frame of reference of that person and how hard that can be sometimes. Absolutely. And I always said it was a constant negotiation with my mother. Um, it was a negotiation of when she was ready to reveal the severity of her illness. Mm. It was a negotiation for her to accept that a hospital bed was going to be needed. Um, It was all a negotiation. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, because the illness is so fast moving, all of these negotiations had to happen very quickly. Um, But I was always staying in the place of she has this terrible illness. She will die, you know, I Mm -hmm. mean, pending a miracle. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really important for me to make her as comfortable as possible through this process. Um, You know, the only example I think of, you know, to give you just to show you what I mean by the constant negotiation, um, it was literally the last couple of weeks of my mom's life. And she looked at me and said, I want to keep all my options open. I don't know about this hospice. And at that point, she had been in hospice a month. And I said, <laughs> and I said okay. And I said, what, what, what do we want to keep open right now? And she said, well, I just want to keep all my options open. And I said, well, um, all right, look, if you're changing your mind, let's get in the car right now and let's go to Hopkins. And we will find a clinical trial and get you in it. I said, but now you have to promise me if we do this, you're not going to be mad at me if your hair falls out, if you get sick from the medicine, because they're going to give you strong medicine at this stage. I have to know this is what you want to do. And I actually stood up and said, I'll get the car keys now. (laughs) Push was going to come to shove there, huh? And she said, well, maybe we don't need the car keys right now. I said, okay. But, you know, I mean, we literally had to have that conversation. And, you know, I went in the kitchen and was like, wow. But I I understood because as human beings, we're programmed to survive. We're not programmed to die. Absolutely. And I think you're also just... um bringing up a, a set uh, between the lines point, which is um, there are ways to not argue with the person and, and make the options clearer to them so that it's less likely that they're going to make a, a decision that's, you know, very out of line with what's going on with them. I can, I can think of many, many conversations with my mom like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where you you just say, well, okay, that 
that's obviously your choice. And here's what I see as the potential consequences. And um, people actually are pretty good at, at figuring those things out. Even, Absolutely. Even ill people. Um, and the other thing I hear in that is, um, y- you know, you knew your mom and you knew uh, saying, okay, I'm getting the keys right now would help. What helps with a lot of people, too, is saying you never have closed your options. You can do that later if you want to. And when if you decide to do that, uh, we'll just get off hospice. Right. That's right. <laughs> you know, no problem. I think that's a misunderstood thing about hospice, don't you? That oh, absolutely. You're sort of committed to your death if you if you employ hospice. I think so, too. And, you know, even my mom chose to go inpatient hospice. Um, she Part of her continuing to be my mother and take care of me was she had said, I will not die in her living room. I have put her through enough. Mm. This has been horrible for both of us. So, you know, she kept saying to the nurse, when you see it's time, I want to go in. And um, the facility we use, the Washington home, had, you know, certain amount of inpatient rooms and lovely staff in addition to the home hospice services. So when that time came, and we're never ready for that time when it comes, the nurse couldn't get a blood pressure on my mother. And she said, I think it's time to go in now. Mm-hmm. And my mother said, now? <laughs> <laughs> I said, wow, are you sure? And the nurse looked at me like, yeah, I can't get a blood pressure. I'm kind of amazed she's having this conversation with me. (laughs) And I was like, well, you don't know my mother as well as I know. (laughs) The grit and determination runs in the family, huh? Exactly. (laughs) You know, and she looked at me. My mother said, if we get there and they find my blood pressure, can we come back home? I said, absolutely. Absolutely, we can come back home. You know, because again, it's that never say die, even in the end, I want to believe that maybe I'll get better. And most importantly, I need to know that you're not going to leave me. Yes. And I think, uh, I don't know if this is true of your mother, but a lot of people I've encountered, it's really a matter of how do I maintain some sense of control over this? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, how, how, how am I in charge instead of cancer's in charge or HIV's in charge? You know, how am I in charge? And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think you've hit on a critical point, you know, and, and in my mother's case, you know, being in charge was knowing that if need be, she could come home. And also while we waited on the ambulance, she asked me to bring her bills and she wrote out checks. And I was like, can I make you some soup? What are you doing? And she's like, you know what? I don't want you to pay late fees. And I looked at her like, what is she talking about? You know, and she couldn't say when I die, but she just said, you know, in a few days, you might have a lot of things to do. And it's not going to be helpful if you have to pay late fees. Well, you know, Cheryl, you're making me think of something because I've I've been very aware that my relationship with my mother, all the whatever the, you know, human to human stuff was, Mm -hmm. that it has felt very much removed. Uh, since she died. And maybe part of it is uh, something that's similar to what you're talking about. She took really good care of me mm-hmm. by taking care of everything. That's great. You know, and I think that is, it's taught me something as a mother, you know, um, that stuff does matter, doesn't it? 
It absolutely matters. It absolutely matters. And I think, you know, it's great for us as the children, but it's also great for them because it's their final act as parents. Absolutely. So now this kind of leads us to the next uh, piece I, I wanted you to read from. So you're busy, busy, busy being a caregiver. Yes. Uh, it's taking 24 hours and all your attention that you can manage to muster for it. And then the person dies, but that's not the end of the work. And it is the beginning of the grief. Um, and so that, that section of your book about the cemetery, going to the cemetery, I thought was really important because you're so vulnerable. Uh, it has to happen immediately uh, unless someone has taken care of it in advance. And you're dealing with a salesperson, basically. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you'd share that section. Sure. This is an excerpt from Chapter 19, Cemetery Services, Dust to Dust. After you have selected a plot location, the cemetery salesperson may try to get you to buy a, co- a couple of common upsells. The first is a vault package. My salesperson said to me, I know you want a vault. A vault will keep mama dry and make sure no bugs or worms get in. I took a deep breath and said, mommy is dead. So I believe the old phrase ashes to ashes, dust to dust applies here. My friend Liz was sitting across the table from me and she nodded her head. Yes then quickly spoke up to help me. She turned to the salesman and said, please tell us the cost if she purchases separately and not the vault package. Liz then pulled out a calculator from her purse. Most states require that graves be lined in concrete. The coffin you have purchased is airtight and will be locked. So unless required by law, you will not need a vault. My mom was buried in Maryland near many of our family members. It turned out that Maryland state law required a concrete liner of the grave only, no vault. So the liner, the plot, and the interment services, the grave opening and closing, cost several hundred dollars less than the helpful vault package the salesman tried to sell me. You know, that that seems important in a number of ways. One, just being under that kind of pressure when, I mean, people that have any guilt in the relationship they had with the person are maybe especially vulnerable. People who've never dealt with death before and they're triggered by having to picture the de- decomposition decomposition of a body. Yes. You know, there are so many things that can play into that, aren't there? There are and, so many things, and, yes. <laughs> and just make it such a treacherous kind of moment and uh, I was really interested that um, you know you didn't go alone you were very smart about it you didn't go alone you went with someone who was practical and she saw it as her job to protect you absolutely that that seems quite wonderful that you had that kind of um, kind of support um, but I think it might be worth all of us thinking in advance um, and telling people that love us what we consider honoring to us, like your mom and my mom too, sound pretty financially practical. 
they wouldn't yes. want you to spend more than you had to spend. It might be an honoring of them to spend as little as possible to get the thing done. Absolutely. And, you know, the funeral industry is expensive and, you know, it certainly is a challenging time, as you've pointed out, emotionally. And so I think it behooves everyone to take someone with them. In my case, my friend Liz was with me and also um, my aunt Regina, who was um, my mom's sister-in-law, and they were like best friends in life. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and she was also a nurse. So she had been the um, co-power of attorney for healthcare with me during my mom's illness. So she had been right there the whole time. And it was great to have a medical professional to help me wade through the Mm. decisions um, that go along with cancer and multiple doctors. So to have the two of them with me in this moment when, you know, you're emotionally raw, the person has died and you have to make all these choices um, was just really great. Really great. Yeah, because I don't know that people uh, who haven't been through it think about how uh, big a job it is just to deal with the end of someone's life. You know, all the calls to let people know, the funeral home or wherever, whatever facility you're dealing with, um, the uh, calling and stopping accounts and, you know, changing. I mean, there's a ton of work. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why the second half of my book really dives into the estate management topics, because here you are, you're in the middle of your grief and you have so many decisions to make. So how can you get support? And most importantly, how can you um, make decisions that are going to be consistent with your future life? You know, one of the saddest stories um, I heard was a woman who actually ended up living in her mother's house because she couldn't figure out what to do and how to do it in the midst of her grief. And she's like, the last thing I wanted to do was end up living in my mother's house. And I was like, (laughs) and there she was, and there she was. (laughs) So, you know, I have a chapter on real estate to walk you through those decision-making points because it's a lot. And, and no minor thing that, um, you know, you're wading through the, the remains of a life in a way i'm Absolutely. looking i'm looking right now at pictures of my great grandparents of my mother as a baby cuz they're on my desk here yeah. um and all those came out of my mother's house you know they're they're mm-hmm. very um emotional uh physical objects sometimes associated with taking care of all that absolutely absolutely Sure, let's go to our second break now, and um, I'm going to direct people again to my my Good Grief page at Voice America. Um, please, please be in touch. I love to hear from you. And you can find Cheryl Derrick, sorry, Cheryl Derricott at www.30minutemanager.com. Back soon. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. What causes us to be sick? We're not talking about the actual illness or the scientific cause of illnesses. We're talking about your body and health. Listen for the healing whisper of Return to Peace. Each week, host Dr. Marianne Chase shows you how to listen to your heart to identify poor health, stress, and disease. 
You'll learn how to heal energetically and spiritually, as well as physically. It's time to depend less on the drugs and more on the heart. The Healing Whisper airs live every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Biohacking for Health is working with your individual biology to gain access to and control over the systems within your body. It allows you to explore your biology and improve health and wellness. Each of us has unique genetic profiles and physiology that require individualized approaches. On Biohacking for Optimal Health, Dr. Daniel Stickler and his expert guests provide a roadmap to navigate the world of biohacking human potential. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Do you ever have an off day? Or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, inspired, and contemplative thought. Showcasing experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists, your host, Winifred Adams, will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. This is Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Cheryl Derricott about her guidebook for caregiving, Being the Grown-Up. So, obviously, your whole book uh, is, in a way, about grief. You know, all of these are a part of grief. Taking care of someone, uh, there's, there's the grief of the daily losses of physical health, there's the anticipatory grief of knowing that you're going to lose that person. But I want to focus a little bit directly on acute grief that... Maybe most of us, many of us at least, experience right after a death of someone important. And I, I want to say, not just, you know, I think we had a, a pretty good level of peace with the person who died, if we're talking about our mothers or if I'm talking about my wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everyone has that kind of peace. And that doesn't mean, it, it sometimes makes grief harder, I've I've um, learned over the years when a relationship is difficult or troubled when the person dies. So um, we all kind of um, experience something when someone dies. And I wanted to talk about that more directly. Um, I, I really appreciated in the book that you laid out the usual advice about um, that period, don't make major decisions for a year, don't do it, you know, basically don't do anything drastic. But you also talked about how you didn't follow those rules. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was great because so many people don't follow those rules. So many people don't. And sometimes 
for instance, I had to get my my mom's stuff out of her place in a very short time or pay a lot of money because it was an assisted living. Yes. And the charges didn't go away just because she wasn't eating uh, anymore. You know, so sometimes you're forced to make very dramatic um, changes very, very quickly. Yes? Yes, absolutely. Um, so um, let's talk about that. Uh, what, How that was for you. I mean... I was stunned that you moved across country nine months after, you know, because that's a huge change in every way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, was that, you, it's, it sounded like that was positive, but I wonder if it was also difficult. It was both. So, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, when my mom died. Um, my mom died in the early morning at like 2 a.m., um, I had actually seen her in hospice that evening and left about 8 o'clock or so. And I could tell, you know, she was very much in decline at that point. She was listening to me. Her eyes were open, but I could see the distant look. Mm. And so um, I actually called, you know, a couple of friends and said, I'm not sure tomorrow. I'm not sure. And sure enough, the hospice called at 2 a.m. and said, your mom is gone. Um, And so I had a good friend um, who also had lost a mom 15 or so years before to pancreatic cancer. And I called him and he said, of course, I'll take you over there to get the things. And, you know, the funeral home, I take it, has been contacted. And I was like, yes. Um, So I think, you know, that immediate point of, oh, wow, it's 2 a.m. and I've lost my mom and I have to go downstairs and I don't want to look at this hospital bed in the living room Mm. um, is just a crushing, crushing weight. That's exactly the word that was was um, traversing through my brain right before you said it. It is very crushing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's nothing, you know, I certainly couldn't have saved my mom. Medical science couldn't save my mom. But, you know, you just feel so overwhelmed and so, you know, at a loss to have to sit with the loss of this person. Um, so... You know, I describe that period as I cried all the time. I never knew when I would cry. Um, I used to tell people that, don't worry if I cry. It may be completely unrelated to anything we're discussing. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. And sometimes I just cry. And so, you know, I was fortunate that I had, you know, as you've, tuned into really great family and friends that that didn't freak them out, you know? Um, but yes, it was a very immediate and challenging and deep grief. The other thing that you're fortunate about, I think, is that you had a relative uh, capacity, a relatively good capacity to allow that in yourself, uh, yes. it, it wasn't just that your friends were okay with it. It was that you could say, 
I'm just going to cry and that's just how it is, you know? And and, uh, I know for sure that is not always the case. People put themselves through the ringer about, you know, what's wrong with me that I'm crying or what's wrong with me that I can't get out of bed today. Um, Since I work so much with grief, um, that is just so, so, so common and so painful because it's a biological process. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, in terms of helping people, I think, understand the biological process, I did everything I had to do to have my mother's funeral. And then I had actually, long before she died, had told a good friend I would help him with his annual film festival as a box office manager. So, of course, you know, life doesn't happen in a convenient way. That's for sure. So, literally, (laughs) what I remember clearly about this time is my mother died. I was crying and suddenly I had intensive back pain. I mean, my back hurt. Like, you know, Mm. needed to go get some pain medication. My back hurts so badly. And, you know, my doctor, again, brilliant woman at the time who had lost a husband to lung cancer said, your back has been hurting for months and you didn't know it because you were so busy lifting your mother. You know, (laughs) you weren't focused on your back, but your back has probably been hurting for two months. And so I was like, oh, okay, that's great. You know, and so I just said, well, my back is going to hurt, but we're going to have this funeral. And then the next day, I'm going to go be the box office manager for my friend's film festival. And people were like, are you crazy? You know? but, but that's really, really common, Cheryl, because uh, it seems to me that because that, I have a chance not only to observe my own grief, but a lot of other people's grief. Mm-hmm. And at first, we kind of just do what we thought we were going to do. Absolutely. And then... Then, you know, there's other things that happen later, but that that's very much in line with what what I noticed, um, you know, people doing. They just kind of, okay, I had this on my books. That's, uh, you know, it's almost like an anchor kind of situation. It really was, you know, and I think it also is part of, you know, just try to get out of the house a little bit and get out of your head a little bit, you know, and... I mean, I remember during the time, you know, there was another woman who was going to be one of the box office managers and she had actually ended up um, separating and was like moving to divorce with her partner. And so, you know, my friend that runs the film festival, he was like, "Okay, I was sitting here this morning going, who's going to show up? And I was like, (laughs) the divorce woman will show up and Cheryl will stay in bed. And instead she stayed in bed and you come in like, okay, my back hurts. Get me some water. I'm here. And it was just like, I don't know anything. Well, you know what? That's a good point too, because um, in a way, assuming that the relationship was pretty good with the person who died, there are, some rougher things about something like divorce because it involves betrayal. Right. And to me, and regret, right? So to me, that often uh, adds something to grief that's quite dizzying. Uh, Whereas, you know, your mom, my mom, that nobody did anything to anybody. Life just ended. Right. (laughs) There's a normalcy to it once you realize everyone does it, you know. 
So I want to, um, one thing that really stood out was um, how much support you garnered pretty quickly. Because I think, you know, I, I, I tell people, if, if people are not in therapy when someone dies, it may be a year before I see them. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty hard to muster the energy to find a whole new uh, service at that moment that's, yeah. that's emotionally vulnerable. So I was very impressed at how quickly you moved to that. And I wondered if you'd share the part from uh, the chapter on grief in your book. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, this is from Chapter 28, Grief, a Highly Personal Emotion. Many people enter into a state of grief the moment the news of a loved one's terminal illness is shared. You may cry a lot or not at all. You may cry at inconvenient times. This is particularly difficult for people who are very private or pride themselves on having a high degree of self-control. Remember, despite the stages, grief is highly personal and your process will not be the same as someone else's. If you're willing, find help with the grieving process through professional counseling and support groups. The hospice where my mom died offered bereavement counseling. Over a four-month period, I went in weekly at first, then bi-weekly, then every few weeks to meet with the counselor. Birthdays, anniversaries, and holidays offer significant challenges when you're grieving. For me, the first two challenging times were Christmas, my mom's favorite holiday, and her birthday, January 2nd. My counselor and I worked together until both of those tough times had passed, and she even suggested a special non-denominational holiday workshop at a local church, which I attended. You know, I was um, thinking while I was reading that about... um, kind of the cultural aspects of grieving and and how different people in different cultures handle grief differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it used to be, way back when I first became a counselor, that um, there was a very strong probability that um, people in certain communities, and including African-American communities, would not go to counseling. And I think that must be changing, or you're unusual. <laughs> but I think it's changing, and that's important. You know, how uh, how do we make grief services more culturally sensitive? Mm-hmm. Because I think I think that lack of trust reflected something going wrong in the profession. That's my feeling about it anyway. Yeah, I think this is a huge topic. And, you know, this is certainly how we met at the ADEC conference um, this year, the Association for Death Education and Counseling that really wanted to dive into these topics of cultural competency. Um, In my case, I think there are a couple of things. I think the Washington Home is a very well-known institution that has served many different people in the Washington, D.C. community um, through their home hospice services as well as inpatient, and they have an incredibly diverse staff. Um, I think that in my own case, generationally, it was not as hard for me to think about going to counseling. Um, I think, you know, my mom's generation 
at 64, you know, when she died, I think that's a very different relationship to services, particularly mental health services yes. in the black community. Um, you know, and this is actually something that I talked about with folks at ADEC in that, you know, who I am as a person that grew up right on the cusp of integration, as opposed to my mother who grew up in segregation, has a very different relationship to services and professionals. Um, and I think it's always important for all of us to just be conscious of that when we're dealing with people. Absolutely. But you also said something else that I think is so, so important, which was that um, the place where you were getting services was diverse. Yes. And uh, I, I just think that's so crucially important, although underattended, uh, t- underattended to. That it's it's really and, and maybe beyond you know grief services just in general um, aren't we more likely to trust a place I know I am as an as an as a lesbian as an LGBT person if if the place that I'm getting services um, reflects me in some way I will start with a little bit more trust for the service absolutely I think that is a big part of what makes people comfortable with accessing services. Absolutely. And that could be in a whole other hour for sure. Maybe it will be at some point, but um, this has been a great, great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope people will, you know, what I like about your book is it's not too much to read. It's very, and you could just read the chapter that applies to what you're trying to do at the moment. Yes. And it it just gives you, you know, they're mostly a few pages long, a real snapshot of what you might be dealing with in a very uh, helpful voice, kind of. Here's a little bit of help. So I want to appreciate you for that. I think it's, it's really helpful. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this time with you. Me too. So listeners, if you want to find Cheryl Patrice Derricott, go to www.30minutemanager.com. Next week, I'll be talking with Zenju Earthland Manuel, a Zen priest and author of The Way of Tenderness. And she also made Black Angel cards way back. Uh, this has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.